0: All content published by Your Brain on Science is solely the opinions of the authors and does not reflect the opinions of any parties affiliated with them or any additional third parties.
1: your brain on science it's really great to have everyone with us today uh and we have a treat for you guys we have a very special guest uh mr leonard picard is here with us today and he's going to talk to us about his experiences related to psychedelics and this is going to be a bit of an open conversation so you guys will get a taste of a little bit of everything
0: yes and so for those who don't know uh, leonard picard is known allegedly as the largest producer of lc in the 20th century but he also has um, an educational background in various drugs, pharmacology, drug policy, and more. And he's been directly affected by the war on drugs and sentenced to prison for two life sentences of which he has been released and is now living in Santa Fe. And we're just so grateful uh, to bring him on today to hear his story. So welcome, Leonard.
2: Well, uh, <clears throat> thank you, uh, Zamin and uh, I'm very uh... Happy as well to be released and living in, in Santa Fe and great, grateful for it. Um, before we get started, I'd just like to uh, say hello to uh, your audience. Uh, I hope they appreciate uh, uh, your marvelous uh, advancements as graduate students in neuroscience, uh, your important work that you are doing, and encourage all students that are listening to this program to pursue that a similar path. Be as educated as you can uh, join in this great celebration with strong scientific support. Um, My dear friend, the late Sasha Shulgin always said, get that PhD, so let Sasha's uh, encouragement ring in your ears.
1: Amazing, some great words. So let's get right into it. All right, so let's let's take everyone back um so why don't you tell us a little bit about how you became involved with psychedelics right socially academically um in terms of your work uh, and what it was like you know living in the 60s and in the 70s and and experience having all these experiences going on around you um and you know being really ensconced in in psychedelics and, and the movement then so.
2: Well, I mean, that's quite an open-ended question.
1: <laughs> it really is. <laughs>
2: I, could, I could probably go on for days, but um, let's see. Um, um, according to the government, uh, my first uh, interaction uh, with uh, the psychedelic world was at uh, 21, that's oh my God, uh, 60, <clears throat> 55 years ago uh, uh, at the, uh, while well, working as a, lab tech at the Retina Foundation for Experimental Biology in uh, Cambridge, extracting mitochondria from beef heart, in which we heard about this um, marvelous change in society among the young people at the time in California due to an exotic neurochemical. I thought this was quite unusual. Uh, According to the government, a small quantity was synthesized there, shared about Beacon Hill, Then uh, travel occurred between uh, Cambridge and Berkeley. Um, I became a um, manager of the bacteriology department uh, at Berkeley uh, at 22. And um, did some unusual things in the basement of the biochemistry building. Um, (laughs) Young future Nobel laureate uh, Kerry Mullis was just upstairs working rather late doing interesting things. And at that time, uh, this is 1968 or so, uh, Kerry made a uh, what he called the magic gram and uh, a single gram of a Nobel laureate's uh, pure LSD. Uh, Of course, there were no analytical instruments that uh, we could use at that time, but there were certainly a lot of willing volunteers. So there's some extraordinary nights in Berkeley now, Berkeley in those years was uh, all lit up with uh, burning barricades and the anti-war demonstrations against Vietnam.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, Telegraph Avenue, which has always been kind of a lively hotbed of dissent, was uh, wall-to-wall with very long-haired young people having these, uh, these uh, marvelous experiences and no older people to talk to about it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It was don't trust anyone over 30 was the mantra. Uh, there was no internet. Uh, people communicated by telephone letters, um, uh, no computers. Uh, if you wanted a bit of data, you had to go through a card file in the library catalog downstairs into the bowels of the uh, the library among millions of volumes, pull out a heavy text, and perhaps there's your information. An all day event that we can do now with a keystroke. Yeah. So, yeah. in those days, uh, there were pockets of young people that were having these. Um, unusually profound uh, religious, magical, philosophical experiences, but we can only talk to each other um, about it. Uh, to, to elders, it would sound um, much too far out. Um, uh, and a situation like that uh, continued for the next uh, 30 or 40 years. One risk one's career if we're an academic and mentioned the word psychedelic or an interest in it. That was uh, absolutely forbidden and would extinguish any hope of uh, tenure. Now, of course, uh, it's extraordinary to see among uh, throughout the United States uh, centers opening Emory, Michigan, Wisconsin, Hopkins, Yale, uh, UCLA, Berkeley. Uh, stunning. I um, remain floored at the uh, exceptional change in society that we're undergoing. Uh, it's a period of enormous enthusiasm and great hope. Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
2: but it was also in the early 60s, although something of a smaller, perhaps less public event uh, due to more insular communication. Um, and then the great government oppression stepped in. <clears throat> um, perhaps it's uh, too big at this point to fail. Uh, Perhaps there are uh, too many eyes, too many distinguished eyes, um, too many advanced degrees, billions of dollars flowing into the space. It's unlikely that it will truly significantly reverse, as it did, say, in 72, 73. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do expect to shoot a drop. We we see uh, small inklings of it with some you know dissent in the psychedelic community and some reportable issues, um, inappropriate therapist behavior here and there, um, um, unexplained death. Um, uh, there are little little issues that are are seen, but <clears throat> so far nothing truly florid that the media would attach to.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: as we continue to process people that people through clinical trials uh, worldwide with looser standards that may change. Uh, But presently, it's truly a honeymoon season and uh, the greatest celebration I've seen in my lifetime.
0: Yeah. Uh, I'm curious about, so did you kind of maybe experience sort of a culture shock when you were released and seeing psychedelics being like, (laughs) everywhere now and like all in the media and I'm sure you heard about it too. While <clears throat> we were, um, in prison but it's through like letters and writing with people but.
2: Well, no, I had a very attenuated form of information occasionally a copy of the New York Times would float around but uh, generally uh, all we had uh, the TVs hanging from the ceiling with uh, hundreds of men staring at them all day. A oh, Fox News on we'd hear a little bit of that. But uh, generally, I had only inklings of <clears throat> the phenomenon that was occurring socially. Of course, I was aware of Roland's great work at Hopkins and his uh, strongly vetted article in the Journal of uh, Psychopharmacology and uh, the, uh, the tremendous uh, uh, suggestion that for treatment-resistant depression, these were particularly efficacious. Um, that, to me, was the watershed moment. So you people- heard,
1: So you had heard about those clinical trials?
2: Yes, yes, I was aware, aware of Amen. all that. Um, um, I sent my son at 17 to visit um, um, Roland's lab, very kindly received him. <laughs> uh, so yes, I was aware of all that work, uh, um, but not not the, the extremes to which uh, it would be interpreted uh, so broadly as effective for a wide variety of um, psychiatric illnesses. Um, and just to address that at the moment, uh, we do see um, I'm in venture space right now, so I see a lot of applications for investment. Um, and we we see every medical indicator being claimed, you know Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, uh, uh, marital problems, um, mm. autism, um, every neurodegenerative disease known. Of course, the mechanisms for all these different uh, difficulties, traumatic brain injury, what have you. Uh, TRD, are uh, wide, widely uh, variable. Yeah, And the idea that a single class of compounds uh, could mm-hmm. be more effective than established uh, drugs for these is uh, wildly speculative. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's such hope, and uh, uh, so many uh, high-quality uh, trials occurring that. I expect that in the next few years, we will see marvelous and newly effective medicines. Uh, But I do feel that uh, 90% of the claims of indicators or applications will wash out Mm -hmm. and fail. But uh, we're going to learn more in the next 18 months than we've known in the last 1,000 years about this class of compounds.
0: Right, and that's so cool. Yeah. Yes. Yes even if it doesn't necessarily work for everything we want it to, right? We're still gaining so much important information about what these psychedelics could do, so.
2: Right, we're it will work for some things. The question mm-hmm. is, uh, which ones? Um, I think most applications uh, will fail. I, I, people are applying it to an <clears throat> intractable pain for which morphine's been very effective <laughs> for quite a long time. Um, um, applications that are almost, um, uh, opportunistic, yeah, in the sense of well, let's claim this and let's uh, uh, drive um, a seed round or an A round for it. But uh, other things are, um, you know, inherently promising. The great work, um, for example, by uh, Gilgamesh—that's uh, Dolly Sames, chair of chemistry at Columbia's laboratory—and his great postdocs there are doing a wide variety of variations on the ibogaine molecule. Mm-hmm. In order to reduce cardiotoxicity. And of course, the anecdotal reports of uh, people that have had strong addictions to opiates, cocaine, what have you, and even non drug uh, severe abuse in their childhood, uh, we keep hearing these um, almost uh, strongly significant uh, anecdotal reports. If those hold up clinically, uh, then we're truly onto something. Um, I think we will have several new drugs that will surpass any known treatment uh, in the pharmacopoeia in psychiatry
0: yeah.
2: uh, in the next four to five years. Um, but I think most will be um, expensive experiments.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, maybe needed because these ideas are finally, we able to be tested right Mm -hmm. there was so much restriction and i'm sure i'm the last person that needs to tell that to you right (laughs) um but so much restriction and it might be opportunistic but it's also very useful because we need to understand that i think people need to fully understand that these will not work for everything will not work for everyone right and having real data to back that up is going to be is going to be vital and maybe opportunistic but also um very very smart to get into some of these areas that are wide open, I think, and and need people to be studying them. So, yeah, yeah. And in terms of, you know, like- I mean, it's
2: not just uh, it's not just psychedelics that we're looking at. We we are in an evolutionary moment in genomics, yes, uh, proteomics, metabolomics. Uh, we are, you know, goodness, uh, AI.
0: Yeah, yeah, the sophistication of the method. <laughs> Absolutely. I,
2: uh, I AI and drug development. Um, so um, it's a new era in neurochemistry itself.
0: Yeah. Which is a much broader
2: field in psychedelics. Yeah. Uh, where we'll modify personality, we'll modify memory and learning. So it's we will enter an age where we possible to uh, cognitively enhance an individual. I don't mean psychedelic experience. I mean, statistically increase one's ability on a standardized exam, for example, or recall of information or a greater cognitive performance. Spearman's G is generally used as a measure of cognitive performance. It's a battery of about 20 tests beyond the uh, Stanford-Binet, beyond IQ, uh, all sorts of neurological assessments involved in Spearman's G. And G may be able to be um, significantly, if not profoundly, uh, advanced by uh, genomic or pharmacologic means. So uh, that will be the true revolution
1: You know, with a lot of capability comes a lot of responsibility and that's something that we can talk about with almost anything in science, right? With the ability, with now that we have the ability to the most basic alter- example to alter yes. you know genes in a human being it altered genes and animals and it's, it's things that we've seen right and it it, it gives rise to all these moral arguments mm-hmm. and that in the field of psychedelics is already you know such a big deal the ethics of the work being done and especially I think in your time considering the ethics of that and there was already so much of a stigma so it's a little bit hard uh, to tease that apart right so with all of these new advancements, with all of these new methods, of course, it's very exciting and you sound very excited about it. Do you think that we can leverage this to, um, ha- make changes that might not, you know, be necessarily pharmacological, like, like the changes that we're looking at with psychedelics, if we can have changes that are equally as large and, and sort of, I keep saying the word changes, but like life changing, right. With all of these methods, do you think the intersection of of that is interesting and the moral arguments that can rise from all of that
2: well yes well bioethics of course is an exploding field and uh, these particular technologies Mm -hmm. you know uh, with psychedelics I think the original vision uh, certainly among uh, the young hippies uh, of my era was to um, increase human compassion you know those were the warriors people who were coming home maimed and uh we, the vision was to stop war, to reduce materialism, reduce uh, the influence of the corporate state, if you will, um, to have new sets of values, to have greater altruism among each other, a type of brotherhood and sisterhood We all listened to each other, understood each other, welcomed each other. Um, it was peace, uh, peace and love um, throughout the realm. That was the idea. And psychedelics seem to be uh, pointing uh, toward that, that was possible to achieve it. With the many visions, we saw the type of heaven that could be created if we were kinder to each other. Of course, one doesn't need a drug to do that. And uh, many people have a vision without any drug. Um, So the question is of uh, the bioethical standards of all this. uh, we will modify human personality by pharmacologic and genomic means, uh, with and without psychedelics. Um, psychedelics have a profound, magical, theological confrontation, a type of long night of the soul searching, transformative, <clears throat> very widely, it can be very strenuous. Uh, you know, a de- glimpse of the divine and uh, a glimpse of hell and um you feel the unity unity of of man and all living creatures that's a very valuable thing to have
0: yeah we'll have
2: drugs that will produce a <clears throat> kaleidoscope of perceptions and feelings i um presently i'm enjoying looking at some of the um many uh quasi-churches that are being formed uh, under the Religious Freedom Reformation Act. Uh, Here in New Mexico, we're seeing uh, quite a number of ayahuasca churches being formed, um, groups that are seeking uh, legal approval as earnest religions um, circling around um, psilocybin use. uh, Long-standing tradition of the Native American Church involving peyote is being expanded to uh, users of San Pedro cactus and uh, elixirs and teas. Uh, Many of these many are are occurring, and uh, presently, it's sort of uh, a real mix. There's no true guides other than the Supreme Court ruling and the UDV versus uh, Uneo de Vegetal versus uh, U.S. Customs uh, was greatly successful um <clears throat> so I, I think that we're going to see a wide variety of uh, new substances that have never been anticipated uh generated by ai drug development mm-hmm. um it's um truly exciting somewhat frightening promising
1: yeah
2: Wonderful time to be a graduate student in neuroscience.
1: <laughs> Wonderful and scary. daunting, yeah. yeah, because, you know, as you mentioned, there's so much that we can do. We have so much capability now, so yeah. to be able to do it is is another, it's a big task, it's a big responsibility, but I think mm-hmm. I think one, one we need. All,
2: all I can recommend is uh, keep your science uh, strong mm-hmm. and ethical and unbiased. You know, if you come up with a result that you don't like, you keep repeating it. you still don't like it, but it's valid and can be replicated. you know, report it.
0: yeah, just happened to me on Friday <laughs> you, know. <laughs> <Not really>. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know if it doesn't, we're going to find out what works and what doesn't. We're going to find out There's there's so many people looking at this. Um, so that will be uh, quite a moment. What works?
0: Right. Um, so speaking of like graduate school, like you studied at Harvard for a graduate program, correct?
2: Uh, yes, and I, I still am affiliated with Harvard, but I, I won't name that here. OK.
0: I, um, I was just curious about um, how you became interested in the fentanyl work that you did while you were doing your studies there.
2: OK. So, so when I arrived at the uh, Kennedy School of Government as a grad student uh, after. Uh, decades in the deserts and mountains doing strange things in monasteries monasteries and earlier prison tour. And suddenly I wound up at the the Kennedy School, uh, a a lovely place. I strongly encourage uh, any students listening to this for whom uh, neurochemistry can be a little more burdensome in memorizing all those receptors subtypes. And you want something uh, perhaps a little less stressful on the forebrain, you might consider public policy Um, I certainly did. Uh, um, Arriving at the Kennedy School uh, under my mentor, Mark Kleiman, the late Mark Kleiman, a noble, ethical, and extraordinarily brilliant man who was also Rick Doblin's mentor uh, at that time, a few years earlier, and was instrumental in helping uh, structure maps uh, to configure to FDA's approvals. Um, uh, Mark... uh, uh, looked at uh, my understanding of the underground. Uh, they were all into criminal justice and wondered, they found someone that could uh, speak to the technology of, um, of drug advances and also uh, public policy. So they kind of latched onto me and, <clears throat> and made this charter. Uh, well, now the legacy compounds, this is 96. The okay. legacy compounds currently on the street are uh, <clears throat> methamphetamine, hor- horrible uh, speed, methamphetamine, cocaine, marijuana. We won't concern ourselves about. But there were no um, unusual analogs. Uh, very rarely, one would see any type of variation on the legacy of molecules. There were maybe you know five drugs you'd find on the street. <laughs> Nothing on the internet. The internet was in its you know, fledgling state. And, There weren't no drug traffic at that point. So my uh, charter and instruction in the ultimate thesis was to determine that we, since we knew that drug development was moving forward quickly and we would see thousands of new compounds, and some of these would be problematic, to predict what the next great uh, malaise would be on the street. What would be the new cocaine?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: What would be the new heroin or methamphetamine? So I spent some time looking at uh, the synthetic approaches to all the legacy compounds, what was known about them, how to synthesize them. I had no interest in anything other than psychedelics, but looked at them all <clears throat> and uh, came up with a worrisome uh, uh, issue in which a um uh, a synthesis of a uh, unusually potent uh, um, opioid. Uh, unknown at the time, relatively unknown. Small outbreaks um, in Moscow, a little outbreak in Boston, maybe killed 100 people, but nothing else. Uh, uh, just a blip in the death rate from opioids, pharmaceutical opioids. And this drug was called um, fentanyl. No one had heard of it. <clears throat> um, I began looking at what well, was in pediatric anesthetic. Um, I began looking at it very closely. Uh, there was a small outbreak in, in Moscow. And so I flew to Moscow and interviewed the head of the MVD, that's the Russian equivalent of the FBI, Major General Sergeyev, who oversaw 5,000 agents across 11 time zones. And uh, he was mostly concerned about heroin coming up from Afghanistan and all the war veterans, uh, Russian war veterans coming back, being involved in the trade. And uh, even though there were, you know, 50 or 60 people dying around Moscow from fentanyl, to him it was trivial and exotic. <clears throat> uh, the Russian source on that was eventually uh, located and seized, and it was kind of an interesting sideline. It turned out to be uh, 720-ish. 20-year-old type um, winners of the Russian Olympiad, chemistry Olympiad, who had holed up with uh, part of the Russian mafia, the as they're called, in uh, Kazan, Azerbaijan, and began uh, making uh, fentanyl and sending it up to Moscow, where it sort of got on the radar and I found it. Um, But once once that group was, serving time and the lab dismantled. There wasn't any more, a little outbreak in Boston in 93. So I'm walking around uh, lecturing at the faculty club at the Kennedy School and School of Public Health that, look, um, if you're looking for the next major drug, uh, this could be it, it's As ubiquitous precursors. I mean, you can buy a tank car of it for 50 cents a kilogram, Mm -hmm. uh, cheap precursors, um, a difficult synthesis, but that can be modified to make it simpler, Mm -hmm. which eventually took place. Um, The question is, will the addict population use it? Mm -hmm. Only heroin addicts would even dream of injecting it. So I began to... um, Interview with the heroin population in Boston. I found myself in many coffee shops, sitting with uh, heroin users, <coughs> young men and women, sitting there all day, tapping their feet, <coughs> waiting for the candy man to appear, and we're sipping coffee. Um, I found some survivors of uh, the small fentanyl outbreak. And did a big survey of you know a few hundred of them, and uh, asked questions such as. If fentanyl were available, this drug called fentanyl, (laughs) would you um, prefer it to heroin? Would you use it if there were no heroin? How fast does it come on? How fast does it recede? How does it make you feel? Um, And the results from that indicated that uh, fentanyl was uh, unfortunately substitutable for heroin among opiate users. And that was the doorway, the key to the whole thing. Now, you can make, make all the exotic drugs you want, but if no one uses them, they, they won't enter the market. <clears throat> so that was the key, ubiquity of precursors. You can buy things cheaply and make it. Two, a synthesis that could be simplified. Uh, three, and once it's out there, people will use it. So um, I <clears throat> kind of exhausted myself going around Cambridge pointing out that this this thing's coming.
1: This didn't ring bells for anyone else, right? Like you mentioned, there was out, little outbreaks in Boston and Moscow, and people were just assuming this is some, you know, maybe a, we won't see this again. It's like little things, it's not important enough. And But you were- Well, okay, well there, you
2: there was mentioned. a researcher, Gary Henderson at the time, who was a forensic chemist, <clears throat> also friends of Sasha and- we um, you know, Gary was aware that you know, this stuff is going could be a problem, but Gary thought that if the lab went away, the drug would go away, and we didn't have to worry about it proliferating. uh Sasha <clears throat> weighed in with um <clears throat> a couple of sentences <clears throat> in an article in um article called Future Drugs in seventy uh, one. And we talked about it a little bit, but there was no serious look at um, this material becoming a major epidemic. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Everyone thought, well, there'll be sporadic, tiny labs, and some people will die. But when the lab goes away, so will the phenomenon, it will not catch it won't be a pharmacological wildfire that will circle the planet right. <laughs> as it has become. So um, <clears throat> we didn't think it would become the great killer. Um, most people thought it would not become that.
1: I, I, I,
2: um, at the Kennedy School, he said, do you want to risk your career on this <laughs> this prediction? And at the time they were serious, of course, you know, so speculative, it was considered science fiction. Why should this thing catch hold? <clears throat> but because I was familiar with underground manufacturers and their motives, I felt that all it would take is one reasonably skilled, unscrupulous underground manufacturer who didn't give a damn about human life.
0: Yeah. Put it on the
2: street. It would only take one. Only take one because there is a variation of a fentanyl called carfentanil, which is 4,000 4, times the potency. So that a single individual in a single clandestine laboratory, for example, in Mexico or China, could make the equivalent of the world's heroin supply annually in a few weeks. Yeah. So... <clears throat> yeah. um, my next opportunity to do anything about this, uh, I found myself, uh, of course, arrested in a trial for psychedelics, in which case I began talking about uh, my work at, at the Kennedy School. And, um, of course, this was, you know, put down of course, by the opposition is, Judge, this trial is about LSD. It's not about fentanyl. But I went on for two days and presented all of the overheads and slides and work and got all the documents and testimony entered into the federal public record Mm
0: -hmm. in
2: perpetuity in 2003. Mm -hmm. Um, The last thing I said was, uh, in 2003, at trial was, we're going to have a big problem,
0: yeah.
2: But of course, discredited. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Um. Okay. Ten years went by. <clears throat> Meanwhile, I'm doing life. Uh, ten years went by. Um, Twelve, and the the amount of actual um, deaths from opioids still remained at about three thousand emergency department admissions a year. Pretty steady from pharmaceuticals. And then I'm sitting and sitting in prison, watching TV one day, and there was a large cluster of deaths, perhaps a thousand people, from a fentanyl batch out of Toluca, Mexico. I thought, oh my, you're, it's starting. <clears throat> Because once a simplified recipe gets into uh, unscrupul- uns- unscrupulous underground hands, it tends to proliferate, mm-hmm. and it's enormously profitable and uh, cheap to make. So at that point, there was no technical barrier against making this stuff. Anyone with a, sc- or a scrap of paper with a recipe on it could do it. Then the floodgates were opened, and our uh, problems began. Yeah. Um, the Mexican cartel. Else, um began to get the precursors, and the rest is, of course, uh, history.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting that you were able to do the the research to predict that. And I, before I came to VCU and started psych, uh, psychedelic studies here, I actually did epidemiological data analysis on fentanyl and its analogs in Detroit, in the city. So I worked uh, with the the medical examiner and compared tox reports to the deaths and doing um chronic opioid like brain analysis and it was very very sad to see the increases in the numbers from 2014 when I you know went to college to now even like you know when I was working it was about 2018 2019 so it's really starting all those analogs were really starting to stack up yeah
2: Right. Uh, The European Monitoring Center uh, on Drugs and Drug Addiction sees um, hundreds of variants on these molecules, Um, mostly coming out of China because they have the PhDs that can do these variations. But uh, what we're seeing in in America primarily at this point um, is of Mexican origin. Um, You know, I've looked at this for a long time, and um, I don't... uh, have a great hope that it's going to suddenly resolve or turn around. You know the death rate. You know it's at several hundred hundred thousand a year or more, and it's worldwide. So if this thing mm-hmm. is entrenched with us, and will be with us um, <clears throat> throughout your lifetime. Yeah. Uh, what will make it go away? Um, well, there may be you know uh, receptor uh, vaccines that appear. <clears throat> you know that block the effects, like a long term naloxone, if you will. Mm-hmm. Or there may be a type of um, you know quasi-religious awakening uh, among users um, not to try anything. You know we're seeing fentanyl uh, appearing on the street, mixed uh, sold as fentanyl. Mm-hmm. sorry, sold as uh, MDMA.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, even cocaine too. Yeah, cocaine. the biggest things, uh, when especially when talking about harm reduction with psychedelics, is fentanyl is one of like the biggest concerns, right? Having to yeah, so Having important to testing your drugs. Yeah,
2: and the question is why? You know, I, I think it's because it's so cheap, and therefore it alters consciousness. And small amounts of it can be counterfeited as almost any drug.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, this will alter your mind. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, you risk your life therein.
1: So you were able to predict this, right? At the time, do you think if people took you seriously, if people were like, this is, this is real, and, and your research means something, do you think anything could have been done at that time to even mitigate where we're at now? Because, you know, you're right, if one, one semi, you know, competent chemist was able to understand the recipe to this or understand what this drug does and it it got into (laughs) those hands, then there really isn't stopping the snowball effect that comes after that. But do you think, and this is purely speculative, anything could have been done to mitigate this at that time?
2: Well, at the time I proposed a number of things that should be done. (laughs) I said, this is going to happen, but I I didn't leave it there. I suggested a number of things to, um, to block it. And uh, among these were um, precursor controls of the uh, the core precursors at that time. Uh, well, uh, NPP and ANPP, they were called. If you control these, put them into a precursor control schedule and made them illegal so that one couldn't easily buy them, then that would keep it out of the hands of uh, underground manufacturers for a number of years. Of course, no one heard that. And yeah. so they were only um, uh, controlled uh, internationally in <clears throat> 2017 or so by the Chinese. I think DEA uh, put them in the Federal Register about 2010 <clears throat> after the DeLuca episode of 1,000 Deaths. Uh, I suggested also that um, one could actually forensically you know, identify uh, specific international labs <clears throat> from an, a uh, spectr- spectroscopic analysis of uh, C samples a type of uh, signature program there's a heroin signature program that exists when, when seized samples one can tell if it's from Afghanistan or if it's from Colombia or, or its country of origin and that can be useful for interception if you will mm-hmm. um, but uh, the same thing could be done could have been done with fentanyl but only in the last couple of years has that program been implemented Uh, On the the biological side, I suggested that um, uh, fentanyl until recently was very difficult to see. You have a person coming and look like they're dying from a heroin overdose. It's a fentanyl overdose. Their eyes are pinned, but they have no heroin on the tox exam, the bloodstream. Um, the um, analytical instrumentation did not exist, uh, sufficient to identify fentanyl. I, I suggested that it, indeed it, it must. Radio immunoassays occurred at that time. I hope we're not getting hyper-technical here. No,
1: no, it's okay.
2: not great. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a, it's a hindsight is always twenty twenty.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I,
2: I think uh, fentanyl <laughs> is like the genie that's out of the bottle and I, I really don't think we're going to be able to get it back in the bottle. I think Fendon will be superseded by other things that are even more interesting. Some may be even more lethal.
0: Yeah.
2: But the point I'm trying to make here, and I'll try to to simplify it, and uh, is that the future is dividing into uh, several directions, several possible scenarios. We're going to have wonderful new medicines Wonderful new healing medicines, and that's where, of course, all our hearts are. But within those tens of thousands of AI developed analogs, we're going to have some little horrors, some little beasts that have never been seen that will take even more lives. So, uh, the future is both um, glorious and uh, scary. Mm-hmm.
1: Definitely. I think so. A big thing to come out of the, first of all, the psychedelic boom in, in the sixties and the seventies, and now with the with the fentanyl, um, one of the big things is this war on drugs, right? The government thinks that they can regulate the flow of drugs on the streets and these deaths through increasing incarceration, incarceration and laws. And you know, oftentimes uh, court cases that we don't fully understand um, in terms of you know really how effective they're going to be in in doing all of that so as someone who served time due to I you know we would argue this war on drugs and this very very intense stance the U.S. government takes on drugs and and classifying them all as being a certain a certain way even those like non-harmful or non-violent right yeah, all would be considered under the same umbrella. Do you think that this is, well, do you think this is an effective way, first of all, to approach any issues having to do with drugs, right? And and nonviolent crimes involving drugs. And a little bit about your experience, I think, with all of this and what you take away from it. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, um, even, even though I, uh, even though it's a miracle that we are speaking, mm-hmm. that I'm not uh, dying in prison, and even though uh, the suffering uh, was unspeakable, um, I still remain somewhat conservative
0: <laughs>
2: with regard to uh, complete legalization. I'll probably catch a great deal of flack about this from this um, this presentation. Um, I'm very much in favor of harm reduction and um, um, decriminalization of natural plant substances. Uh, I'm, I'm behind the decrim movement. Uh, I think penalties should be considerably lowered uh, for most drugs. <clears throat> but I think that um, things like fentanyl need to be uh, very strongly enforced. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I'm not uh, terribly in favor of making um, uh, cocaine or methamphetamine uh, Completely legal. Uh, that would introduce a uh, whole new populations that heretofore had not tried it, um, due to its illegality or inaccessibility or moral stigma, if you will. Uh, I don't think uh, you know mom and pop would do well on uh, ten dollar a gram cocaine. I think we would have. Uh, I think it would produce a certain devastation in society.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So I, I I do feel that you know the the classical narcotics um, should remain uh, controlled, but uh, less far less penalized.
0: Do you think that uh, there could be a separation between those for, with the fentanyl, for example, those who. Um... You know get caught with something that was adulterated with fentanyl that like perhaps they didn't know it was fentanyl and how they could still go to prison for having it versus like those mm-hmm. who are purposely obtaining it or purposely manufacturing it do you think there should be a separation
2: well i think if a person is ignorant that they're excuse me that their sample contained uh, uh, this uh, this drug is more heavily penalized mm-hmm. that should be a consideration by the court of course
0: mm-hmm. yeah um. just curious
2: but we're moving into realms of law and drug policy. I, yeah. I think most of your <laughs> listeners might enjoy other tales.
0: <laughs> I, yeah, sorry. just That was a quick question I had.
2: Good, good, okay. good. Um, yeah.
1: So why don't we talk a little bit about your book, The uh, Rose of yeah. Paracelsus. Um, so what was your inspiration for writing The Rose? And also, why the name? It's a very interesting, very unique name. Um, and it was, I think, great to sort of come across, but tell us a little bit about the inspiration and and why you, the motivation behind it.
2: Um, goodness, well, <laughs> uh...
0: You got the hard questions. Fifteen years, hard hitter here.
2: Fifteen years and two life sentences. Things look rather bleak. I
0: cannot imagine.
2: Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a very empty cell. There's no, no children, no loved ones. Everything is gone. There's no money, no job, no uh, respect. Uh, most most friends have gone, but some stay, and a few new ones are made. Uh, but it's all very remote. One is completely disempowered. One has no hands, no voice. No one will listen to you in prison. The guards don't want to hear anything you say. Um, what to do? I um thought I would tell a story and somehow get it out there in the real world somehow. <clears throat> and try to remember um, not only what the world looked like, having not seen trees or flowers for a decade, and to try to remember some of the beauty and some of the, the heart and the feeling of um, why people did what they did that allegedly were at the higher levels of psychedelic distribution, the underground, uh, chemist of yore mm-hmm. what was their motivation what were their lifestyles like what did they think how did they behave uh, who did they love how who loved them um i thought that might be of interest to some of the young people yeah and so yeah. Yeah. within that framework uh, i began to write in pencil and, um, a little each day and it became quite a habit and it would overtake days and weeks and um after the first year, I looked at this great manuscript of handwritten material. And, and uh, by that time I'd learned enough about writing that I realized I should throw it into the uh, trash fix <laughs> <laughs> So I did and began again, a little even more seriously using everything I'd learned and felt and tried to write lines uh, that were um, like a kind of long poem kind of song lines that um, one say was were singing to one's grandchildren or singing to a distant uh, lover
0: mm-hmm.
2: or uh, singing to one who had the ears to hear it. And I, I thought know. there might be a handful of people that you know one day would find this particular interest.
0: Absolutely. So,
2: uh, I, uh, I wrote it with that, that spirit in mind. I wanted to talk about the the beauty and the, the passion and the pathos of um, living underground with a great vision that was uh, oppressed, and um, one had to fear of you know, fear of guns and being captured, and living like that every second of every day for one's entire life, all because of a particular vision in one's youth that said that uh, these things may be. Uh, wonderful for the human spirit and heart.
1: How are you able to connect with all of that? So you have some beautiful themes in the book, right? You talk about heaven and hell, darkness and light, white flowers, and a lot of spirituality. So in a place, you know, mentally, physically, yeah, in a dark and a desolate place in your life and in in your head, how are you able to connect with all of that? Because I can't even connect with but with the good in the world, sometimes in my very normal, very regular life, how are you able to do that?
2: Well, I mean, you're very blessed, as you Elena. Um, and it's important that we all remember that in in whatever is going on in our lives, even uh, in the greatest conce- imaginable darkness, there is still a light. Mm-hmm. and uh, we we too are blessed. So <clears throat> I tried to hold on to that. Yeah. And the words became uh, more comfortable and I began to have a sense of freedom about saying things. <clears throat> so I began to get, you know, wilder and wilder and um, you know, reaching out. It was kind of a death song, if you will. Um in the writing of the rose, I had no idea I would ever be free.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. You know,
2: the future was, um, you know, falling over in some bleak cell when nobody gave care at all. Mm-hmm. Well, ultimately, it would be that. To become weaker and weaker and more detached and uh, finally fall down. So that was the future. But there was this lovely little thing called a pen in my hand. (laughs) And uh, even though no one in the prison would listen, I could speak to uh, uh, the mythical friend, mythical loved one, uh, my own children, Mm -hmm. that had very little contact with their father uh, for their entire lives that I might never see. Yeah. I might mean, never hold or talk to them or explain to them. I've out of contact for decades. Um, so I wrote it for uh, loved ones and friends and children that um, one day they could hear their father's voice and maybe understand a little of why we did what we did and why we risked our lives to do it
0: mm-hmm. yeah i really appreciated the way that it was written it was very poetic it was it was the beauty that you were going for like very much came across like there were moments where i was like very touched by the care that went into the words and i i did really like the you know, that play on heaven and hell and darkness and light throughout the book and how you spoke about specifically the the moments with the children and the how the children were always cared for by the six in the book. Like, it was something that I thought was very well done.
2: I hadn't seen children in so many years and I hadn't seen my own.
0: Yeah.
2: You know, that, uh, and this happens to a lot of men, you know, that... Uh, When a little girl comes on TV or something, it's like, you know, it's a type of heartache. Mm -hmm. Just to see them, you know, even though I'm free now and and my children are all grown up and, you know, we're friends. um, You know, when I see, um, you know, four or five-year-olds kind of like they were when I left. um, It's the most beautiful thing in the world.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. in the book,
2: uh, we we do talk about children and uh, in a loving way. and the six of the six, of course, always uh, strongly cared. Uh, uh, there were a number of um, <clears throat> stories about children that had some difficult moments uh, due to disability or or abuse, mm-hmm. and uh, how they were uh, rescued or uh, cherished, or put on the right path. Uh, uh, by the sixth,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and perhaps that was, you know, my way of um, trying to express those feelings uh, in words when I could not do it uh, physically or verbally. Mm-hmm. You know, create a create the mythos. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, men, men in this long periods of captivity, um, you know, don't entirely lose their humanity. Uh, I often lecture sometimes at universities, and uh, uh, I always put up a slide of these ants. (laughs) What are these ants doing up here? And I tell the story of the ants, which is um, the prison yard was simply dirt Mm -hmm. and uh, gray 30-foot walls. And um, there were no pets. There were no dogs. no cats, no kids, nothing living. And so men would do uh, strange things like um, uh, capture a tarantulas, for example, in the Arizona desert. And tarantulas are, don't bite really, they they walk very delicately, you know, like little old ladies, very soft and furry legs. Men would, would capture these things and keep them as pets. And, they would f- find a pigeon who perhaps had their one leg cut off and trying to fly through razor wire and, and uh, feed it bits of bread and uh, raise it. And other men would um, make little cardboard running wheels because you couldn't build anything or construct anything, but you could slice a bit of cardboard stolen from the kitchen and sort of glue that together somehow or not and, and make a little running wheel. And then they would capture a mouse <coughs> and cherish the mouse and feed it and, and put it on the running wheel. And the, the mice uh, really love this. And so um, guys that had mice on running wheels would attract uh, little crowds at night for men to come in just to see something living, uh, running freely and uh, being cared for. And it got so extreme, of course, that you would see around a small ant hole in the yard uh, groups of, you know, guys in their... 60s and 70s great big strong tatted up you know individuals who had seen the horror of life and they're all standing around looking just standing there looking at the hole in the ground and maybe putting out little bits of apple or cracker or something they'd stolen and got out of the chow hall and got the dinner dining area and gotten through multiple metal detectors and phalanxes of guards searching their pockets and they got it out on the yard and they would go to the anthole. And feed the ants and remark about their strength in holding up a bit of cracker or something of that nature. And then became very fond of the ants at after dinner and would, uh, you know, feel low when they went away in the winter and uh, eagerly anticipate their arrival in the spring cycle of winter and spring forever
1: mm-hmm. at any point, did you think about, you know, the road that you had been on? And did you, now you're away from your children and you know in your head at that time, that was the rest of your life. Did you ever think about the past and maybe wish that you had done differently?
2: Well, you know, at, at, uh, at, at 16, <clears throat> 16, 17, 18, <clears throat> I was raised in an academic family and my intention was to go into neuroscience Get my doctorate in uh, in neuro and um, teach and do research. That was the path. The only thing I ever considered. And uh, of course, um, (laughs) when this exotic neurochemical began uh, changing an entire generation of my peers and people began to talk about. their realization of the uh, beauty of the forest and the oceans and uh, the unity of uh, our hearts and uh, universal consciousness and realizing that they actually had minds. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Saw this happening and thought, well, this is quite different. And it seemed to be uh, extraordinarily important. And so we thought that we were heirs to something of great value to our species. And that our species needed to go in different directions and not destroy this earth. We needed to uh, love the plants and animals and each other and not create great killing machines. We saw that as a fundamental flaw that the human heart had made a great error. And so um, <clears throat> a number of us. Um, Went that way. Now uh, the barrier to entry uh, in the psychedelic community uh, uh, is open, and we're seeing you know, thousands of new people coming and in, having in their experiences in the classical manner. Um, it's um, a joyous time to to observe this. Uh, uh, I have considerable hope yeah. uh, for the future.
1: And how does it feel to know that you ushered in this era, right? Like you were part of us opening up our minds to, you know, understanding these substances and and the neuroscience. You mentioned that neuroscience was your big love and your big dream when you were younger. And now we are both PhDs studying neuroscience and, and psychedelics. Like how does that feel for you that you have not only inspired so much change, Socially, but also academically. Exactly.
2: Well, I would contest that. First of all, you are, you both are highly trained. Enormously promising. Very young. And <laughs> you are, you are. Responsible for a huge amount of the future. You can't see it now. But your work will unfold before you and open a uh, vast vistas for tens of thousands of people your research and your directions will influence a, a very large uh, segment of the future uh, so you can't put it all in one one person um, um, uh, you trust your trust in yourself trust to uh, have faith that uh, your own activities will be uh, of enormous benefit I, I know they will. In, in terms of the past and, and the the early stages of this phenomenon, uh, there were, if you're speaking of underground chemistry, um, <clears throat> you know, there were identifiable quite a number of people. Uh, uh, Owsley, <clears throat> Augustus Stanley Owsley. Uh, I just had lunch with his wife uh, here recently, uh, uh, Roni. Uh, Owsley um, put out the very first um uh, large scale batches, uh, 65, 66. He, over his lifetime, he made about 500 grams, that's a million doses. <clears throat> uh, Nikki uh, Sand and a dear friend, and, and Tim Scully, same, um, uh, were the central figures in a group called the Brotherhood of Eternal Love mm-hmm. um, in the early 70s, put out, or throughout Nikki's life, rather, put out, um, Nikki, 13. Uh, kilograms, that's 250 uh, million doses by DEA standard. <clears throat> um, the uh, Kansas lab, presumably, in which I was uh, uh, presumably involved, uh, according to the primary government witness, put out uh, uh, that same equivalent every year for 20 years. Of course, um, from my view, that's far fetched. But um, no one can really speak to the truth of matters, or no one will. Right. Well, so uh, <clears throat> government tends to inflate figures. <clears throat> but before, before the '60s and the underground chemist, uh, just going back through um, the early area, you know, the indigenous peoples, of course, for thousands of years. Um, the beloved Maria Sabina, the first Curandera, who is being uh, disinterred uh, socially, um, um, sings such beautiful songs. There's collections of Maria's songs, and <clears throat> uh, one of which, uh, <clears throat> one of which she's singing, uh, trying to heal one of the the uh, villagers in de Jimenez in Oaxaca with her mushroom ceremony and mushroom velada, and she's calling upon the spirits and she's <clears throat> intoxicated of course with uh, cubensis and uh, uh, she's going uh, describing herself um, hummingbird woman am I uh, eagle woman am I woman of the whirling whirlwind Am I? Woman of the shooting stars. Am I? Yeah,
0: beautiful. beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like kind of leaves you a little breathless, right?
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad Maria is being, being looked upon uh, so favorably these years. You know, the villagers were very upset <laughs> with her. Um, in the mid '50s, she encountered uh, the banker Gordon Wasson from New York, had an interest in psychedelics, and uh, exposed him to it. And this all appeared in the primary magazine at the time. I saw an original issue, perhaps '57, and there's Maria around the campfires. And I recall seeing that article at twelve, but I had no idea of the life life before me afterwards. Um, there's a there's a lovely history to all this. Um, fragments of it have been told in various ways, but I have yet to see a uh, a truly respectful, comprehensive history of uh, the whole thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to to encapsulate all of it, right? And especially because everyone tells a different story,
1: so it's hard to get at the heart of it.
0: Well, everyone you know, tells a different um,
1: story, and this is also important to people in a lot of different ways, yeah. right? Like the, the religious aspect to it, the cultural, the spirituality aspect of it. We talk about, oh, you just mentioned one of your big visions with your, with all your colleagues and your peers at the time was to help humanity see its own humanity, right? Love and, and peace and all that. And that's a very spiritual. um, And that harkens back to, you know, a lot of the cultural uses it, you know, it's, it's used In a lot of practices, but um these substances can do this for us, but the the power dynamics that we exist in, right? Like our the way that our cultures, and I'm I'm specifically now talking about Western American culture, right? The the dynamics that we exist in. Um, we're gonna have we're gonna talk about psychedelics and capitalism in a couple of episodes. I think that it's these substances go a long way in helping people understand spirituality. Um, but can we can we really understand it while existing in this structure that, you know, can promote greed and power imbalance or power one way or the other, I think is so difficult. And that's partly what makes the history so difficult, because we don't have the like we can't contextualize it in in the same exact way. You know, that's
2: really, really an important observation. As I mean, it's. Um... <clears throat> You know, right? I'm well. I'm presently in venture space. I um, every week I look, look at. Um, I work for JLS Fund in, in New York, and uh, you know, uh, we uh, every week we interview uh, any number of young founders, um, you know, chemists, uh, physicians, neuropharmacologists uh, that are have their pitch decks and they're looking for investment to start up a fund. So, fund, you know, pitch, pitch, pitch after pitch and. Uh, <clears throat> occasional one will be funded. Uh, many um, seem very promising and uh, some seem opportunistic. Uh, some are without strong scientific report, support and seem hastily done. Mm-hmm. Others are have very distinguished boards <clears throat> and um, uh, may well survive. But this is all a very corporate world yeah. truly corporate. I mean, it's SEC, FDA approved, uh, SEC controlled, uh, boards of advisors, term sheets, uh, convertible notes. You've got uh, chief financial officers and chief scientific officers. And uh, this is a whole new way of looking at what only a few years ago, was entirely in, in the hands of the underground where it has been forever. Yeah. Uh, even now, uh, the underground, if you will, that would be normal humans that are just curious about use. It's no one going, gee, I'm depressed over my loss of my husband and I need to, going to take this drug to heal him. Uh, it's just <clears throat> people <clears throat> in the forest uh, walking hand in hands, nibbling on a bit of mushroom in the moonlight. Around the oceans, around the campfires, and that's how it's been for a very, very long time. and that and that gone has gone on successfully and changed lots of lives, enhanced aesthetics and appreciation of uh, art and music in each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, now uh, hmm, it's uh, heavily corporatized, uh, heavily politicized, heavily medicalized, and uh, sometimes. Uh, I think of the young people that sometimes come to me and whisper, what about the sacred?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And I understand what they're saying. You know, It's a question of, uh, I don't think that um, that essential heart will be extinguished by the, the current trappings of corporatization. Uh, it all comes down to the individual. Uh, looking inward with the assistance of these um, sacraments, if you will.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And, um, you know, that unspeakable connection with the divine, that change, uh, that opening of the human heart and mind, uh, that's extremely precious and there's no value that can be put upon it monetarily. Yeah. And it cannot be regulated. It can't be controlled. Um, hopefully it's reproducible. Um, but there it is. So this kind of special, elusive, magical, eternal, most precious moment um, is being bounced around in accounting realms. and
0: yeah, it's like the the social ritual and like the spiritual ritual. Uh, that psychedelics have been known to be taken you know in the in the context uh, yeah in the context that you're taking these has been kind of washed away and medicalized it's like it's within these this wall now in this box and I think that that's something that definitely I hope the field addresses moving forward is that we can't just put these things in this box of a treatment it's still going to be a spiritual use. it's still going to be um this profound powerful experience for people that you know can be you know used to treat people like we've mentioned before but i think only recognizing it that way which is kind of what's going on right now is a loss for the community
1: and you know what it's a big part of it i think is in efforts to control, right? Like to control the way that these drugs are used. If you're able to say, hey, this is the way that we're going to present these drugs to you and you don't know enough to use these on your own and get those benefits out of them without us or without our trained therapist or without the way that we're using them. I think it's easy to monetize something like that because now you're monetizing an experience that you're selling to people, that you're telling people you can't get this on your own, right? You can't get this anywhere else. And I think it's easy to do because of the misinformation. And um, this is probably something that was very different from your day. But now we have articles and headlines where people are like psychedelics and psychedelic medicine is the next big thing. And it's the answer to all of our problems. Well, the truth is, it's probably the answer for a lot of people's problems. But there's a lot of other uses to these drugs. And we are selling them in one way and it's to sell them I think it comes back to like monetizing all of these drugs so this whole legalization and this medicalization do you think that it can exist alongside the spirit the spirituality that these drugs are supposed to in a lot of cultures and a lot of religions stand for right so I I guess this is kind of going back to to what we talked about before but yeah the whole legalization and, and medicalization aspect of it
2: well, <clears throat> well, it can exist in parallel and does exist in parallel. I mean, both paths are happening. Mm-hmm. The above ground, if you will, mm-hmm. discourse, of course, is on the billions that are flowing into the space and the uh, mainstreaming of it. You know, in the '60s, uh, we we dressed and had long hair and wore unusual clothes, and among them were bell bottoms. So I knew the party was over when I saw bell bottoms in Macy's. <laughs>
0: It's yeah, they're coming place,
2: back. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, there's there are two paths. Uh, one is, of course, um, people who have serious medical problems,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and we hope that uh, this class of compounds can uh, uh, can be helpful for them.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But the much larger part of the iceberg, which generally is unspoken about, is the uh, continuing uh, illegal use. Mm-hmm. Um, Uh, It may be uh, of of great value, uh, but still is prohibited in society. And that's a much larger group of people, but we don't hear much about it because the corporations can't make anything from it. Um, It's all still underground, still between friends, still very hush-hush, and that's all going on. Um, Nora Volko, the great Nora Volko, uh, MD, who uh, directs uh, NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, um, uh, is a friendly, and she um, <clears throat> thinks that um, the continuing medicalization will increase uh, underground use, and the question is, is that a negative? All
0: right. Sorry,
2: right now. <laughs> um, I, I make this statement rather often, but it may be a value to do so here. Right now, the emphasis is on, on treating people with identifiable psychiatric issues. But uh, and that's only recently. That's only since, uh, since Roland did the, his uh, great work in 2015. And uh, to some extent, uh, Rick. Uh, recognizing its value of mdma and ptsd in the 90s and um oh goodness um before all that though the un- the underground generally uh, felt it was not wise to give these materials to anybody with obvious problems
0: mm-hmm.
2: the person's having difficulty in the relationship or um You know, schizy or uncertain, or you know, seemingly unbalanced in any way, which considered um, you know sinful to expose in these materials. You didn't want to sit up all night holding hands. You didn't want them to be in any type of psychic pain, or or people around them. It could be very difficult, long period, Uh, and that worked well with very little uh, public problems uh, from these materials. Uh, Now. In order to get them, you have to go, uh, you know, one is sick, one is a definable neurosis, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, all ranges are being treated. I mean, the Oregon model allows uh, individuals to come in without uh, pronouncing uh, any type of uh, clinical uh, presentation. Um, so multiple experiments being done through multiple states, in completely different structures, and this is all good this is all good because so many experiments are going on involving these, the social experiments, the treatment providers, the state regulations, um, the drug designers. Um, there's a thousand emerging points of light. So we shall see mm-hmm. how it all evolves. Um, and trying to predict the outcome in the next four to five years is uh, is truly challenging. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think I think Rick's in a very good position uh, with, with maps to um, to have FDA approval.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Uh, so that will be the bellwether moment for the entire industry. But FDA yeah. is a funny beast, you know. They can uh, you know most things even uh, don't make it to phase three. 30% make it to phase three. And even after that, uh, FDA behind closed doors and some Mattel and Bethesda makes some sort of decision based on goodness knows what.
0: Yeah.
2: No, those aren't public minutes and there may be a political influence on it. But it looks as though the Biden administration is acting favorably. And you've got uh, Cory Booker and Rand Paul's new Breakthrough Therapies Act. And that's extremely promising litigation. And uh, You've got uh, our our veterans working hard in D.C. Jesse Gould at Heroic Hearts. Uh, uh, you know the the legislators on the Hill listen to the uh, war fighters. They listen to their military, uniform military, uh, and the uniform military is saying um, they were in great pain, and in some instances, ayahuasca or this other material helped them enormously. And, you know, coming from those those uh, those men and women, uh, people on the Hill are starting to hear.
0: There was just a bill in Virginia that was, there's a Senate bill and a House bill and neither of them passed, unfortunately, they got tabled, but it was really cool. I w- spoke in favor um, in front of the Congress people for one of them and I got to hear out the testimony from a lot of the, the veterans as well, like, Within the session, and it was really moving, and I was moved to like like tears. And then I was like, "How did you table that?" Like I was so moved, and none of these people were listening. Like it made me mad. But that's in Virginia, where
2: very, very moving, very moving. Yeah, yeah. You know the, the recitation of trauma among among soldiers, the changes they went through, and the particular horrors of the war to them. I mean, if this these materials can be helpful. So be it. Uh, I think the Virginia just um, it was a knee-jerk reaction. They're just it's early. It's a few years ago. It was unheard of.
0: Right.
2: You know, it's just uh, it's wild how <laughs> responsive <laughs> legislators are becoming. Uh, states are. It's a domino effect. We're seeing. Uh, uh, we'd better be right. <sighs> let <laughs>
1: right. see. Yeah. Um. So. We talked a lot about the past and now in the present, in the current, Um, there's a lot of big organizations that are helping move this forward, right? In both uh, in sort of medicalization and legalization and decriminalization, um, but it's a lot in the science as well and exploring the capacity of these drugs and actually understanding these drugs. And I think one of the biggest, uh, we can't talk about psychedelics without talking about MAPS and and Rick Doblin and- Like you've
0: mentioned. Yeah,
1: and you've mentioned him a few times. so how does your relationship with Rick Doblin, does that sort of inform uh, the way that you are, I don't know, approaching these drugs now? now? Yeah, <laughs> and all of this, all of the research and all of the studies that are happening with MDMA and PTSD and, and just like this big boom of, of research that MAPS has really helped supporting.
0: And I have a question about what you mentioned that Rick Doblin also went to the Kennedy School. Did you know him when you were also there, and was he the same as he is now? <laughs> we
2: did, we did. We knew Rick was there a few years before me, but uh, we had the same mentor. Ah, <laughs> I didn't
0: know yeah. that. He that. The oh. Same
2: mentor, you know, and socialize a bit. I, uh, I uh, have always been uh, greatly in favor of uh, Rick's vision. I, uh, in the very early years, uh, I recall sitting in prison when I first saw the first issue of Maps which Rick had drawn a little eagle kind of coming out of an egg and fledging being born. It's kind of a little rough thing. And I'm sitting, this is perhaps 88. I'm sitting there in prison looking at this thing and going, this fellow has um, uh, major courage uh, coming out and speaking publicly and promoting this idea of, you know, let's openly use this material for uh, treatment or what have you. I thought it was an immensely brave act, you know. Mm-hmm. My life had been spent uh, indoors away from everyone never breathing a word, having entirely different personas, um, uh, extremely clandestine, and secret. And so here's this uh, marvelously <laughs> visionary and brave individual uh, uh, speaking openly about it. And uh, uh, I, I very much admire that. When I would bounce into Rick on the street around Cambridge, I always said how much I honored his path, and uh, uh, he's done very well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was at
2: uh, I was at Rick's. Uh, oh goodness, uh, his PhD defense in '96 uh, in a Kennedy School and a little forum with uh, his mentor and. Um, uh, various researchers and uh, yours truly, and uh, the um, uh, special agent in charge of the DEA Boston office attended as well. Paul Brown. This <laughs> is <laughs> so, in the heights of the Kennedy School, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, guards at the front door and what have you. And uh, Rick got his PhD then. And
1: Incredible.
2: Yeah, yeah. He well, Rick as a, a, a. He's he's. Um, he hasn't changed. He's he still um, um, s- smiles a lot. Smiles a lot and uh, very easy to relate to. Uh, he carries the vision in the heart, and uh, I think he's he's the perfect uh, representative uh, for this revolution. And is being widely honored, and uh, I honor him as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's awesome. Um, so I think I just wanted to. I think we're going to end, I if that's fine with you. Um, I had one quick just from the book quote that I wanted to ask you about, because I really liked it. <laughs> and so this quote, um, it relates to that concept of the darkness, light, heaven, and hell. And it starts off and then goes into saying, uh, paradise or inferno for those who dared assume the difference. And gorgeous. I I really think a lot of what we've been talking about is kind of talking about that balance right between the bad that could happen and the good that's happening and so um, I just wanted to one let you know that I really like that quote and to um, just maybe can we end like kind of talking about that concept and what it meant in terms of like your writing and then uh, just moving forward.
2: Well, that uh, Paradise Inferno quote, I think was in the
0: latter part of the
2: book. So congratulations on getting through about 600 pages of very difficult English.
1: (laughs) I love that kind of writing. It
0: was like, as soon as I started it, I was like, oh my gosh,
1: like, yes. We were texting each other back and forth about it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's
2: quite wonderful. wonderful. Uh, Next month, uh, the book is premiering at the Turin Book Festival. It's been translated into Italian.
0: Wow. uh, great theoretical
2: physicist, Carlo Rovelli, wrote the uh, preface, one of the founders of quantum gravity theory.
1: (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Uh, Yeah,
2: yeah. interesting interesting legs. The heaven and hell thing, I think we were talking about some of the uh, classical changes that are observed in psychedelic experiences, some of the phenomena, particularly with um, acid, if you will. Of course, the book is about big acid, global acid. Okay. Um, uh, some of the classical changes that are rather commonly seen um, among people newly entering the realm. And among those would be like a birth experience, a a sense of being born. You know, you may require 800 micrograms or more to go (laughs) go through. (laughs) Uh, Death experience, if you think you're dying, and how can your heart even beat with these incredible changes that are going on? Um, you know, senses of the unity, of course, as we've mentioned before, of of, of uh, living things. Um and one was uh, one of the characteristic things uh, is a heaven and hell experience. And I, I hearken back to a scene at Berkeley um where an individual, I can't say who, was um um experimenting one night with Carrie Mullis's first gram. <laughs> Uh, the inventor of the polymerase chain reaction, the 1996 uh, Nobel laureate, uh, who uh, had the uh, insight into the polymerase chain reaction while on his motorcycle, taking a good part, the same part of the same gram, and it kind of came on uh, up uh, around Boonville, just below Mendocino, as he's roaring up from Berkeley, and there it is, and he sees sees the DNA molecules uh, twisting and. Uh, combining and he he had the insight into PCR on acid and got the Nobel Prize for it which he admits in his book Dancing in the Minefield Um, but that night uh, said individual was on Carrie's uh, acid uh, uh, sitting by the biochemistry building rather late going through rather serious changes and there was a little dog sitting the individual was sitting on a bench this little dog poking around and and the dog uh, sometimes looked very ill and unhappy and diseased and uh, you know twisted, and you know it was, the plants around looked kind of malevolent, and the people were strange. and was feeling great discomfort and universal malaise. and that was kind of hell. Mm-hmm. And then, in the next moment, that dog was happy and warm, with and soft and fluffy. The great big eyes and, and the trees were just lush and beautiful, and the lovely gases that we breathe. And everyone was walking around in states of health and uh, open hearts and smiling eyes. And that was heaven. And this this image went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And and the question for the individual was, what was the difference between the two? Mm-hmm. And the difference between the two was, when in the midst of hell, the individual thought of love. Amazing. Mm.
0: And important.
2: That's just one small story and, uh, you know, millions of personal anecdotes of, uh, you know, these phenomena can't truly be characterized. There may be some overarching characterizations, uh, the phenomena we just discussed, but everything seems uh, very personal. Yeah. Yeah definitely. It's a question of what does it mean to you?
1: Yeah. I like that. Yeah. yeah. I think this is a personal, a very personal topic for everyone, right? Like you yeah. have to come to your own conclusions about, mm-hmm. about your <laughs> own experiences.
0: Yeah.
2: Right. Just to, to, you know, I, I suppose I end our, our conversation today, although we could talk for days.
0: Yeah, we <laughs> really could.
2: <laughs> Perhaps we can talk again.
0: So, as follow up sometimes.
2: I just uh, would suggest in your, in your own careers <clears throat> clearly clearly you have the vision and the talent <clears throat> so it's very important <clears throat> that you go forward with that talk to everyone don't be afraid to talk to anyone don't be afraid to share um, wildly speculative ideas yeah. you know, always speak up always reach out always dream yeah. read, 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 read Talk to everyone. Indulge to the joy of the density of information in this evolutionary moment mm-hmm. for ourselves and our species. Uh, and, and shine your light. Shine your love.
1: Gorgeous. Yes. And with wonderful that, words to live by. Yeah. And I think that's the perfect way to sort of end this. So thank you so Thanks. much okay. for speaking with us and to our listeners, um, and sharing your experiences and your sort of, I think, profound thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope that everyone that has stuck around um, has questions or any ideas, please reach out to us and, and engage. But thank you everyone for listening and thank you so much for uh, sharing everything with us today.
2: Thank you for having me. It was lovely. Thank you.